Gear up. You've got a lot more diapers to go. And, oh, man. But now we're out. Good. I, I think we're out for good. So... <laughs> Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bible Geeks Weekly Podcast. This is episode 151. I'm Brian Sheely. I'm Ryan Joy. And thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in to our 12th session in this guided study series that we've been doing called Training Wheels. We're in our penultimate episode here in the series talking about lasting direction. We're almost done with this thing. Kind of feels like it's just been a whirlwind flying by. And maybe that's what parenting is going to feel like someday at the end of it all. When we look back, it's like, well, that was just a blip in time. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a little more of an investment than this series has been. <laughs> Although for some people, maybe they're ready for us to move on. But I hope that it's been a blessing to, to especially parents and parents-to-be. Yeah, for sure. And in this episode, we're talking about lasting direction. And we kind of teased it on the last episode by talking about, well, I guess being pushy with our kids, pushing them in the right direction, motivating them, kind of giving them a sense of purpose in their life. And I think that ties in pretty nicely to a conversation starter that we're going to go revisit here in the beginning of this conversation. And that episode was called Mona Lisa Smile. This is Training Wheels. Mona Lisa Smile. Imagine if your job was to take care of a priceless work of art. When da Vinci painted the world's most beloved portrait, he couldn't have known over six million people would flock to see that famous, enigmatic Mona Lisa Smile every year. Experts say it's worth over $860 million, a treasure the Louvre staff have the immense responsibility of protecting and sharing with the world. But we're called to take care of even greater masterpieces created by an artist beyond comparison. So before we send our children into the world, let's prepare them for a life dedicated to their maker. Here's the big idea. God made our kids for his glory, not ours. Though we're glad they belong to us, we want them to belong to him. As Hannah said, For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. 1 Samuel 1, 27-28 Hannah didn't know who Samuel would become or his significance in God's work, but she dedicated him to God and instilled a sense of identity as God's servant. God knew our kids before we did, forming them fearfully and wonderfully in the womb. All their days are in his book. He's the source, the vine that'll make their lives fruitful. And as they abide in him, he'll answer their prayers and keep them in his love. When they believe God works mightily in them, it changes how they see themselves. So devote your kids to God in your heart, training them in his way, surrendering their future to his care and praying for his will to be done in their lives. We're stewards entrusted with these precious souls, readying them for life beyond our care. So as we receive children from the Lord, may they give themselves to him. So here's the big question. Do you see yourself as a steward preparing your kids for life without you? So follow along with this guided study at BibleGeeks.fm slash training wheels. And may the Lord bless you and keep you today. Shalom. So our kids are like a priceless painting, I suppose, as we were talking about there in the conversation starter. And the big idea there that we brought up is that our kids were created for his glory, not for ours. And I love this idea that we think about our kids as being priceless and precious. And 
we certainly treat them that way. I think sometimes we certainly view them that way. But like to view them as priceless, not only to us, but to God, I think is super important in helping us kind of level set what we're doing here from the standpoint of like Ephesians chapter two, verse 10. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had designed beforehand. But so were our kids. You know, our kids are his workmanship. And so we, as parents, I think we function more like stewards, as we're going to talk about, as we take care of this precious gift that God has given to us. And if I really settle in on that, how does that change the way that I parent? Am I more motivated to pay attention when I know that my daughter belongs to God and not me? I think. I think that really does change the game in in terms of my responsibility as a steward. Absolutely. Absolutely. To think of a trust from God is the the central idea of being a steward. The big question was, do you view yourself as a steward preparing your kids for life without you? And it makes you think about those steward parables of Jesus, where Mm -hmm. a master entrusts to his, his servant, his steward, his manager of his his treasures, and he counts on that steward to make decisions in his interests. And when we think like a steward about our kids, we acknowledge they were made for him. They will find satisfaction and blessing only in him. And it's a it's a classic parenting misstep that a lot of a lot of parents have done. I'm sure I've done it at times where we make our parenting and even our kids' lives about us somehow. Mm-hmm. And we try to find our own fulfillment in in their choices and who they become. And that is the wrong direction because it's not about us. It's not even about our kids. It's about God. And that's the only way that they'll have the life that they were they were made for and that will really bless them. The other day we got happy meals for the kids as a treat and they came with this little Sonic the Hedgehog toy, and it was the kind, those pullback cars, the kind that you, you oh, drag yeah. backward on their oh, wheels, yeah. and then they go shooting forward, mm-hmm. and and our younger ones had trouble, because you have to keep a firm grip on it while you push down and pull back. It's a surprisingly challenging little combo of activities <laughs> for little hands, but when you do them all together, the motivation is all built into the car already. You don't need to push it. You just point it and let it go, and it shoots forward. And it seems like a good picture of our job as we hold on to them and position them for the future, helping hone the right motivations. We don't just protect them, we train them, and we try to cultivate hearts ready to follow him and bear fruit in him, and then we let go. And hopefully they go propelled forward by that built-in motivation and heart that has, has come to know what is important in life. So I think as we stop here and and really consider our job, maybe let's lighten the mood just ever so slightly with an icebreaker question. Yeah, this week, the icebreaker is what's one thing you don't miss about when your kids were small? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think one of them that I remember very vividly is the fact that like I had to carry Ashlyn everywhere. you, You might think, okay, well, that's sweet. Oh, how how nice when you get to snuggle up with your newborn or whatever. But like it gets old after a while having to carry her around in that baby Bjorn. Like that thing wasn't meant to last forever. At the minute she was able to stand up on her own without falling over or even better, like when she could walk beside me of her own volition, that was just a great day. (laughs) I didn't have to carry her anymore. (laughs) You know, she could just do 
what she was meant to do, use those little legs of hers. And uh, I do not miss that anymore. I, I seriously would not want to have to carry around a baby for the rest of their lives. Oh, man, especially when you're out and about somewhere yeah. and as they're getting bigger and they're tired, you know, you're at the zoo or where at the store or something and and they're tired and now you've, you're carrying around a two year old or something yep. because they're just about to collapse on the floor. And that's why my wife always says, why didn't you bring the stroller? But that's just another thing to bring around. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, for me, I, I just have to go. I guess it's an obvious answer. Maybe a little gross, but diapers and potty training. Hey, that's I a mean, fact of life, man. <laughs> one of the hardest parts of having our surprise baby, Nadia, after we thought we were done, was going back to diapers when we thought we were out of that stage for good. Our little ones were... <laughs> Of course, worth going through it all again for our, our two younger kids. But that was rough, kind of just reverting back when we had purged our house of all increments of diapers and that whole lifestyle. Just when you thought you were out of the woods. <laughs> they pull you back. Yeah, it's like those stories where the hero overcomes the obstacles, he climbs the mountain, he thinks he's completed his quest, and then he catches sight of another mountain in his path. He realizes... You're barely halfway through your journey. <laughs> Gear up. You've got a lot more diapers to go. <laughs> and, oh, man. But now we're out. Good. I, I think we're out for good. So. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into our first segment here on the episode, and that is finding Jesus. We're going to go back to some surprising passages that you might not associate with Jesus and learning about him, but that is really from 1 Samuel chapter 2 and Luke chapter 1. There's some passages where I know as we're talking about sending out our kids, you'd kind of imagine that we should find some passages about older kids, but we're actually going back to these two stories of moms really before their kids were even born and how they sung these great songs of praise. And we find Jesus, I think, in both of these. Absolutely. One of them is a precursor to Jesus, but really both of them are in a way, as so many prophecies in the Bible are. And so Hannah prays and and says to the Lord in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, my heart exalts in the Lord and my horn is exalted in the Lord. That's the beginning of her prayer, which sounds a lot like the beginning of Mary's prayer in Luke 1, 46 to 55, where she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And so you start to see right from the first line, these parallels. And Hannah talks about how there's none holy like the Lord and how he is a rock. There's no rock like our God. And Mary talks about holy is his name and mighty is the one that's, that's done great things. So again, they, they continue. And then they both have this reversal theme of the mighty being brought down and the lowly and poor being lifted up. He's filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty, Mary says. Hannah talks about how he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seed of honor. And then the end of all of this for Hannah is the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The horn being a, a sign of strength and power. It's going to lift him up and and Mary closes it out by talking about how Israel, God's servant, will be remembered in mercy. And God is about to do a great work through her son, of course, 
to bring the offspring of Abraham and bless his offspring forever. So as you look at these two kind of parallel songs of these mothers, these these moms, one before she's conceived, the other while she's pregnant, what do you see here about Jesus? It seems pretty logical to me to jump right to this reversal, like you were talking about how in Hannah's prayer in verse 8 of that text, he raises the poor from the dust, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. And as I'm reading that, I'm just seeing Jesus in that story. Like that is the story of Jesus. He came from a poor family. He grew up in really a, a humble scenario. He was never at like the, the seat of power or he was never politically significant at the time. He was just sort of a humble man almost all the way through his life, really. I mean, there was never a moment where he did anything that someone might have looked at as like politically important as a king. From this story here and, and from her prayer, and, and especially even in, in Mary's prayer, we see that things aren't always what they seem on the surface. It's not that Jesus is some great political figure, but he's a, he's a lowly figure and God is going to elevate him and lift him up. And he was given the seat of honor and he, he was given the name that's above all names and the name at which every knee is going to bow someday, Philippians chapter two. And so as God blesses Jesus with this honor, I think he's also lifting up Hannah from disgrace. He is, he's lifting her up because she kind of, as we're going to talk about in a little bit, she found herself in, in a pretty sort of depressing situation. She wanted to have a child, but she couldn't. And she was sort of getting mocked on the other side by her rival at the time. And it's like she went from this moment of just being low as low could be to the highest heights that there possibly could be. And that's what God does. He takes people from disgrace and brings them to blessing. And so if he's going to lift us up like that someday, he's also going to lift up our kids like that too. And I don't know, from my standpoint, it's hard sometimes to watch my daughter kind of go through these moments where, where she's not being treated well or she's not being viewed well. People may have misconceptions about her. They may think badly about her, poorly about her. Maybe she's not dressing the way that everyone else does or whatever it is. You find this scenario where you, you see that your child may not be regarded very highly by a lot of people. But we know how God feels about them. We know how God feels about our kids. Same way he feels about us. Same way he felt about Jesus, about how he felt about Mary and Hannah in these stories. You know, we can be low. We can be at the bottom, at rock bottom. But God is always going to lift us up if we're faithful to him. It's such a simple truth and a, such an important one to teach our kids and to take to heart ourselves that Jesus is the perfect example of, that if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he lifts us up. And if we exalt ourselves, he lowers us. Right. And so there's this, this perfect picture of Jesus lowering himself. He was the prince. He was the king of heaven, you know, king of everything. Yeah. He lowers himself, and then he is exalted, like you said, above every name. And now he lifts up all of us. That's a beautiful thought that's here. And, and I, I think that the parallels between Samuel and Jesus are striking and continue on, not only in this song, later on in the chapter, about maybe a chapter later in each book, 1 Samuel 2.26 and Luke 2 verse 40, there are these parallel passages about how 
God is blessing each of these sons, how each grew in stature and in favor with God and man, mm-hmm. definitely meant to point our our minds back when we read about Jesus to Samuel. And, and the parallels, if we're paying attention, tell us we should see Christ as a fulfillment of something that Samuel began. Samuel was a prophet. He was a priest. He was the original kingmaker in Israel. He anointed Saul. He anointed David. And then here comes the son of David, Jesus, the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ, comes to be prophet, priest, and king, lifting up the lowly, delivering us with that mighty hand of God. And the last verse of Hannah's song really sums up all of this. I read it earlier. He will give strength to his king. Now, at this point, there was no king whenever she, she says this prayer. So yeah. she's filled with the spirit. She's speaking something beyond her sight. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. How is he going to do that? He's going to do that through her son that hasn't even come into existence in her womb yet. And yet God has a plan. God knows what he's going to do with this simple woman's simple faith and the son that he's going to give to her. And from that promise, from that son, Samuel, comes a King David, from that King David comes a prophet and a priest like Samuel, but greater than any prophet, greater than any priest, who is a king like David, but greater than any king. And God uses Samuel to do this, and then Hannah he uses to do her job, preparing him for that work. And even David, the man after God's heart, couldn't fulfill all that this promise calls for. It's it's maybe directly talking about the anointed one, David, here, that he's going to give strength to his king. But of course, it's it's impossible not to see Jesus in that promise and Jesus who will fulfill all of these songs of, of turning the tables, as you said, of our fortunes, receiving us in our weakness, lifting us up in his strength. Where we were poor, he makes us rich. Well, thinking about Hannah here, let's get into our second segment And that is Hello, My Name Is. Hello, is it me you're looking for? Okay, so Hannah here obviously is such an important figure when we think about someone who is setting her kid on a direction and looking forward to the future as we've been talking about. So let's focus a little bit more on Hannah and her story. And we sort of briefly touched on it a bit, but setting the stage here, we know that Hannah is the mother of Samuel, this great Jewish judge at the time, really the last major judge in Israel's history there. And she begged for a son. And eventually her request was granted by the Lord. And so that's kind of where we start with her. Where is she in her life? Where is she living at the time when this story takes place in 1 Samuel? Well, like you said, we're in the time of the judges, which was the dark ages, as I think of it in (laughs) Israel. I mean. Yeah, the last verse of Judges, the book of Judges, summarizes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that summarizes a very dark book. I'm not saying there aren't any heroes there, but the heroes are even a little bit, uh, well, really flawed and a little (laughs) bit uh, dark in their stories. And this story takes place in the hill country of Ephraim, which is right in the middle of Israel, where Hannah's husband is from, and also where Shiloh was, which is the place where the ark and the tabernacle rested during this period. 
Yeah, so this whole story takes place in 1 Samuel chapters 1, 2, and a little bit in chapter 3 as well. But we see here, Hannah is not really a, a major figure throughout the Bible, but she is a super important figure in starting off the life of this man, Samuel, who's going to just make a huge impact on the Lord's people. Absolutely. So as we get into the story, setting up the story we see in verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, that this man Elkanah had two wives, and that gives us some context to start to set up the story. And like many women, she wanted children, and she found she couldn't have any. Only in her case, her husband Elkanah had another wife, maybe because she couldn't have children. Maybe she she was his first wife. I don't know. But he had another wife who did give him children. And so that just gives a very simple summary, but then it goes into the dynamic in their home. <laughs> I mean, if we had to do this parenting series in the time of polygamy, I think we would have a whole lot of more things to talk about because I can't imagine the dynamic in Hannah's home with Elkanah and Peninnah. Oh, it's like, come on. And that just makes things so much harder. But we see here this first scene from Hannah where she's grieving. Hannah is a person who, like so many of us has just gone through really some dark times, some depressing times. I think for Hannah, she was sort of the Rachel in her relationship. No, I'm not talking about friends here and Ross and Rachel. Like <laughs> Hannah is really the Rachel of Jacob's favored Rachel. He, yeah. he loved her so much. Jacob loved Rachel. And here we see Elkanah who loves Hannah. She is the one whom he gives the double portion, but it certainly is not a scenario where Hannah feels just propped up and blessed all the time because she can't have a son. She can't have a child. And so she is the other wife. And this woman, Penina, she was her rival. And so in all of the opportunities that she had to look around at the things she wanted but couldn't have, she got to see right there that Penina had everything that she really wanted. Say what you will about feelings of inadequacy about being a woman who can't have a child today. And it, it, like you said, it is real. But back then, it was such a big deal. It was maybe a much bigger deal than we have today. This was her purpose. This is what she felt like she had to do. And if she couldn't have a child, well, I think she felt like a failure. And so every year they went to the temple, she was reminded once again about her infertility. And so I love at the end of this little section here where Elkanah kind of comes to her and he tries to make things better. It's like, you know, am I not worth to you more than all these sons and whatever? And and I could just imagine Hannah being like, nope, you do not fulfill the needs of having a child that I want to have. Anyway, we see here that Hannah is really in a in a pretty dark place. Yeah. And, and we can really learn something from Hannah about how she handles that dark and depressing place that she was in. You know, she is actually the only woman in scripture that we find doing some of the things that she does here. The only woman we find in the Old Testament who uh, goes to the, the tabernacle to worship, uh -huh. the only woman who makes a vow and keeps it. But here, she couldn't bring herself to eat in that feast before the Lord. And eventually, she just gets up and goes off by herself. You know, sometimes you just can't hold it in and pretend like you're okay. Right. And so instead of going to her husband with her troubles, like some of the matriarchs before her, if you go back to Sarah and, and, and Rachel, as you mentioned, she takes her grief right to, as she calls him, Yahweh of hosts. 
the, the Lord of the army of heaven, she vows to dedicate any son she receives as a Nazarite, which is someone who couldn't cut their hair, they couldn't drink alcohol, they couldn't touch anything that's dead. And it usually wasn't a lifetime vow. You can read about this in number six. But for Hannah's son, and similarly to Samson, it would be a lifelong vow as a Nazarite, as someone completely dedicated to the Lord. And as she silently mouths these prayers and vows, she's you know moving her lips, but she's she's just so grief stricken. She's not speaking out loud. She's she's deep in her grief and in her communion and thought and conversation with God. And so she's weeping bitterly before him. And if you thought you were alone with God and with your grief, you might act differently than you would in public. I mean, right. we've probably all done this, you know, in your quote unquote closet where we're talking to to God and we're maybe really troubled and probably look silly, but you're not worried about that. You're just thinking about what's going on. And little does she know None other than Eli the priest sat nearby as a spectator <laughs> watching her and thinking she's had a bit too much feasting because she's acting like a drunken fool. Whoops. And <laughs> he chastises her for it because she just looks silly. And she says, no, I'm not full of wine. I'm pouring out. I'm not filled up with something. I'm pouring out something. I'm pouring out my vexed soul before the Lord. And so he offers her a priestly blessing, which is something that the priests at the end of number six were commanded to do. But this, this blessing that he gives isn't exactly that blessing. He says, basically, may God answer your prayer. And for once, it's like something lifts from Hannah. She doesn't feel so awful. She believes that God will answer her. And it, it seems like it, it just changes everything, that faith that her prayer was heard. And so finally she goes in and she has some food and it says that she doesn't look so sad. And, and she's right. After they head home, the Lord looks on her graciously and a child is conceived and she gives birth to him. She names him Samuel, which means heard of God. Isn't that perfect? I have been heard by God. She could have gone on with her life. She could have gotten what she wanted. And like a lot of people, after they make a vow before God, if you, if you let me pass this test, if you get me through this, then I'm going to, whatever, I'm going to give my whole life to you. She could have just said, oh, well, it was probably just good luck. But she knew it was the Lord who heard what she asked. And so what did she do with that knowledge? Well, then she decides to lend. She's the ultimate lender here. And I don't know, <laughs> like the fact that she just follows through with this so completely is amazing to me. We borrow things loosely sometimes like, hey, can I borrow a piece of paper? It's like, well, yeah, obviously I'm not going to give you the piece of paper back. Like I, I'm asking to keep the piece of paper, but <laughs> Hannah is definitely lending something here that is pretty much priceless to her, this son, Samuel, that she's had. And so while she asks for more time to wean the child, it's not that she just hands him right over immediately. When she does show up to bring her son Samuel, she lends him to the Lord in such a big way. She brings this huge offering with her, including her son, and in almost like an Abrahamic kind of way, she sets him on the altar and dedicates him to the Lord's service. A living sacrifice. A living <laughs> sacrifice, exactly. Letting God take control. And so she sort of takes the boy from her hand and gives the boy into, well, I guess, Eli's hand into the Lord's hand to dedicate him to his service. 
And she just follows through. It's amazing how she doesn't treat that promise, that vow that she made so lightly as to just kind of sweep it under the rug and ignore it. She just gives it all. And she even says here, I'm lending him to the Lord as long as he lives. Well, it's like, does Samuel have a choice in this? Well, (laughs) if his mom has anything to say about it, no, no, he does not. This is his job now forever and ever for the rest of his life. And you can see the effect that that has on Samuel in who he becomes. And right away, we see this in chapters two and three of 1 Samuel. Samuel serves before God as a young man, and before long, God calls him literally by name. Hey, Samuel, he's asleep, of course, and (laughs) we will go into the whole story, but Samuel learns to say, speak, your servant is listening. And that really sums up who he is throughout his life. There's a lot of other adventures and exploits and services (laughs) of God, things that he does in God's service. Uh, there's a reason that these books are called Samuel. It's because of the of he is kind of the the one that takes center stage throughout the beginning of these stories in these books and sets everything in motion as he becomes God's instrument in this time of transition from the judges to a time of kings. Yeah, and so I think as we see here with Hannah, from just sort of stepping back at her story, I was thinking about this moment where she really just has to let go of Samuel and hand him over. I can imagine her saying, like, hold Eli's hand, not my hand. Let go of me. Take hold of Eli. Take hold of the Lord, really. And so she teaches us as parents how to let go. Like, even at the earliest age, imagine from the standpoint of of some other mothers in history, how, like, what would it be like to put your baby in a basket and just let them float down the river so that they can live? You know, you know, imagine really sending your son out there to die for others as Mary did. And just the trust that is required to see that God is in control, that God is leading and to see that so palpably that you're willing to do the unthinkable thing, I think is just really the lesson we need to continually come back to as parents, that God is in control and that we can trust him to give our kids over to his service. And so. I hope that someday I'm able to let go with that level of trust. Trust is definitely a, a core part of this, this dedication to God that we're talking about because of, like you say, that you're, you're really, you're not just saying, I want you to serve God. You're releasing some levels of, of control and influence and power that you want to have. You're, you're trying to be an influence, but at some point you're also saying, I'm going to trust you and ask that your will be done. And uh, this plays out for Hannah differently than it will play out for most of us, for sure. But but the principles are all the same. And I think these first few chapters of First Samuel give us a do this and don't do that parenting example. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's really interesting. It, it goes back and forth, contrasting Hannah and Samuel with Eli and his awful sons, worthless men, as the Bible tells us that they are. Eli's sons are the priests, but they abuse people. They commit sexual immorality. They make a mockery of the Lord's worship. They actually keep people from worshiping God as they're supposed to by the way that they force people to give them the the portions that belong to the Lord. They actually threaten them violently if they don't do these. It's just crazy. And we don't know the whole story, 
But the first time we see Eli approaching his sons about their sins is when he is, as chapter 2, verses 22 to 25 says, he is very old. And they have no interest in listening to him. He has no influence with them whatsoever. They got their priestly position from him, but they want nothing else from him. They're using that power for themselves. And it's like his example, his words, they mean nothing to them. And God tells Eli in chapter 2, verse 29, that Eli honored his sons above the Lord. What a thing. What a thing to hear. You know, we want to to love our kids and we consider them, as you talked about, precious and important. But man, that can go the wrong way when we then put them in this place of honor above the Lord. We, it makes me think back to our idolatry conversation oh, yeah. maybe a year or so ago. It's, it's like our kids can be put up on this pedestal where we're doing so many things to try to make them have the best life that we want them to have or to make them happy or whatever it is that they get put before the Lord. I mean, what an awful thing. And that's evidently what Eli did with his choices and his treatment and leadership of his sons that led them to this, this place. And these stories are are interspersed with the story of Hannah dedicating her child to God. Not when she's old, not when she's very old, but before Samuel is even conceived. He does not exist. And she shows the faith and the sacrificial devotion that make it clear that she honors the Lord above her beloved son. I mean, imagine putting these two stories together, though, right? Oh, man. Because you have... Her who who she's willing to let go of Samuel and let him go really into Eli's care. But then if you think about it, she's watching Eli as a parent. How does she see him as a parent when his kids are just just acting ridiculously? I mean, that level of faith, too, to know that I'm giving him over to a man whose other kids are kind of a mess. Yeah. I mean, how ironic. There's a lot of irony in these chapters. I think of Eli mocking her for her simple prayer, calling her drunk while his sons run rampant all over God's house in their haze of sin. Uh, But I also think about, like you say, how Hannah's devotion really gave Eli a second chance at training up a servant of God. He becomes a father figure, and Samuel was obedient to Eli and to God, where his sons never were. Why? Well, it all starts with one woman who made a decision, a commitment to God, and held fast. That showed Samuel. Hannah showed Samuel how important this was. He knew who he was. He knew the story of who he was and what his identity was and what his mom did for the Lord. And and that, you know, of course she loved him. She brings these clothes, all that, you know, she brings these gifts and she expresses his her love for for Samuel, how precious he is, and yet he sees what she's doing, and that affects him. And and Hannah puts these influences in his life, and she evidently takes this leap of faith that Eli is going to be the right influence when the time comes. And when the time came, he followed God on his own without those training wheels that we keep talking about, you know, (laughs) Hannah and Eli put those training wheels on, Elkanah, I'm sure, in some way. And so we see that whenever they let go and took the training wheels off, 
the training that they had put into Samuel, the devotion, the things that Samuel saw in them and the things that he learned from them became core to who he was and, and what a blessing it was to God's people. That's so good. Yeah, she's such a great example of sending out our kids into this sort of confusing, unknown world, but just giving them <laughs> a sense of purpose as they go. And that's really what we've been talking about here on this episode. So let's get into our third segment here. And that is our reach out question. Reach out, reach out and touch someone. Our reach out question here, where we try to just connect with each other, get a little a little deeper into the conversation, kind of sharing our lives with each other. The question is, how does the thought, Brian, of an empty nest sound to you? Not too bad. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, some days I'm sure it goes either way, but I honestly don't think it sounds that bad. We sort of talked about how this on the last episode where the prodigal rejected his father by selling everything that he had and leaving, like he burned all of his bridges and, and headed out the door. If that were the case, when my daughter leaves the house and goes, I think I, that wouldn't sound good. But I hope that when Ashlyn does decide to make that decision to head out on her own, that she's fully settled in on the fact that she can come back and that she's around, she calls, she visits, she keeps us involved in her life. And when we talk about lasting direction here on this episode, if there's anything that she's learned from, from me and from her mother is that family is such a huge part of our lives. Her grandparents are always around. Her family is always a big part of, of who she spends her time with, where she goes, who loves her. She knows that everyone is just so connected and invested in her. And I hope that in the future, she knows that that sort of tether will always bring her back to her family. And so I don't know what the future is going to look like, but I'm honestly praying that she heads out, but never really goes that far from us and from her family. That's funny. I was thinking the same thing. I'm that I I don't really mind the idea of them moving out. That that doesn't sound so bad. But actually, if they moved far away, I I would be really sad. And I know we live in a time when it's unlikely to keep all our kids in the same town. And we love the idea of having the kind of family that likes hanging out with each other, wants to take vacations together, that kind of thing. I need breaks, but I miss <laughs> them. You know, as soon as I like take that break and I get away for, you know, go a full day working upstairs or going out somewhere or going on a trip, I go a day without seeing them and I'm ready to get back and just be, I mean, not even a day. I mean, if I go a few hours here, I'm ready to go down and just get in when the you fray. thought you were out of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> but then I'm like, Okay, now I'm overwhelmed. Give me a second. Dad needs five minutes because there's, you know, four people asking for things and a lot going on. Uh-huh. But so, you know, some days it, it sounds okay, that idea of just having some time with my wife and, and that kind of thing. But I really want them in our lives and I want them around. I, I think my wife would say, in fact, I did ask her this question and she said, that makes me really sad. They're my babies, and I don't want them to go anywhere. And I'm probably in a different place than that. But but like you said, uh, them moving out, I'm fine with. But them moving to another state will be a, a little rough. And I really want to want to kind of find as many opportunities to have the whole clan together because they're my favorite people. Yeah. Well, I'm just gonna say, you know, you are the one who moved to another state away from you. <laughs> Never mind. Oh man, this started long <sighs> before me. My my parents moved away from Ohio, moved all over the place so yeah. that I don't 
Geography means nothing to me as far as home <laughs> because I I grew up in all these different states. And so I know maybe, uh, though, I'm planting roots at least in one place. If, if we can stay here geography for a while, means nothing then, to me. I love it. I mean, that's welcome to the modern world. Exactly. All right. So let's get into our challenge here for this week. And yes, we do have a challenge that we encourage you to do along with us. I am ready to face any challenges that might be foolish enough to face me. So the challenge this week is to check in with a young person about how they want to serve God when they grow up. And I love this challenge because it really does help them to see that they have a role someday, that, that maybe they have a role right now. What is their role going to be? And I think knowing our role, knowing our service opportunities, the ways that we can serve, I think even for people who've been in the church for a long time, I don't think that's always easy for us to know, like, what is it that we do here in the body? What is, what is it that we're providing? And especially for young people, I think finding our function in the body is really settling in on our skills and our talents that we bring to the table. Maybe it's good for us to prepare our kids ahead of time what do you want to be when you grow up is a really good question, but like maybe a better one is how do you want to serve when you grow up and trying and encouraging those young people to find areas of service, maybe even steering away from like these super visible areas of service, like praying and giving and encouraging and supporting, empathizing and listening and leading and all these kinds of things that they can be doing as a future body part. I think preparing them for the challenges that they're going to face Setting them up with the tools they need now is going to help them really grab the bull by the horns when they get into that role of service and find direction in their life, knowing that they can be an active part of the Lord's body. I think you're really on to something there with helping them to think how they want to serve, but also how they were made to serve, how they're built for service. Well, as we think about how we serve God, let's go to God for strength and help, asking him to to help us as we try to guide our kids. And we put in the suggested prayer of, Holy Father, keep our children from the evil one as they go into the world. And that's from John 17, verse 15, which we talked about a lot last week. I called it the perfect parental prayer of sorts. And so I would like to take that prayer and really use it as a starting point for us to to kind of pray our own version of Jesus' high priestly prayer there in John 17. So let's go to God right now. Holy Father, everything that we have is from you. These children, they've come from you and they belong with you. May they know you. May they keep your word close to their hearts all their lives. May we Give them the words you gave us, and may they receive them. We're praying for them. May we give attention to consecrating ourselves, that they might learn to be set apart for your service as well. While we're with them, may we keep them in your name and guard them. May they have your joy fulfilled in themselves. We know they'll have to live in the world. We know the world will often be filled with hate for them, and we won't be with them. Keep them in your name and let them be one with you and with your people. May all of yours be one, even as you're one with your son and with your spirit. We don't ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Set us all apart for you in your word. And as you send us into the world, send them into the world as well to bless it 
and spread your love and your light. May we all be a blessing, even as you bring your blessing upon us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So next week, we're getting into our 13th and final guided study session. Here it is. In our Training Wheels series. And this is sort of the the happy ending we've all been waiting for, (laughs) what our goal ultimately is, something to, to strive for, to see them be joyful in obedience. This is the end of that sending them out section, our final section of this study and our final lesson in the study. And after that, we'll have our full guided study put together in, uh, in a PDF that you can download. But before this next study, we encourage you to read Matthew 12, verses 46 to 50, Titus 1, verses 5 to 9, and 3 John, verses 2 through 4. I suppose it's good that we're ending this thing on a positive note, because some of these episodes <laughs> have been a little bit heavy. And yeah. so... Really just thinking about that moment where we get to envision them being with the Lord and and developing that relationship with him. It's not over for us. We get to rejoice with them. And hopefully that's something that we all are looking forward to. And I'm looking forward to the next episode. This has been episode 151, though, of our Bible Geeks podcast. You can find show notes for this episode in your podcast player of choice or at BibleGeeks.fm slash 151. Feel free to share these conversation starters with a friend on social media or wherever else. You can also, as Ryan just mentioned, download all these conversations, these guided studies there on our website at BibleGeeks.fm slash training wheels. And in just a week or two, we will have all these things ready to go for you to print out and have these conversations on your own with a small group or even with your church. And until next week, everyone, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.